Okay, 2 Peter chapter 2. It's been slow going, but that's okay. We have eternity. What we don't get finished in this life, we will definitely get finished when we see him face to face. Now we've been on this verse 4. We've been stuck on this verse for a few weeks. I'm going to read 4 through 9, although we won't get that far today. But I want to bring this into focus, the, uh, the context of what Peter's talking about here. As we've mentioned in these last several weeks, Peter is trying to show his readers that although there would be false teachers and false prophets that would come into the New Testament church, just like there were false prophets in Old Testament times and false teachers, Peter said that that would again be happening in the New Testament church. The other New Testament writers spoke of it. Even Jesus warned about it. And I think what he's trying to get across here, uh, sometimes it can be discouraging. I know I've heard people say, why doesn't God deal with these people? Why doesn't he do something? I'll bet a lot of you have had those thoughts and maybe even verbalized it. The thing we have to understand is that God is in control and a lot of what you and I are looking for in this life in terms of justice and fairness and judgment for one thing it's a good thing you and I aren't in charge of judgment because everybody but you and me would get judged <laughs> right that's why Jesus said judge not lest ye also be judged now again we we can measure Jesus said by their fruits you will know them there there is a there's a difference between being judgmental and being um, some have called it being a fruit inspector but now even when, if you're going to be a good fruit inspector then according to the scriptures you have to inspect your own fruit first remember Jesus said before you try to remove the splinter from your brother's eye you must first remove the plank or log from your own eye and so the implication there is how can we possibly even detect a splinter in our brother's eye or our sister's eye when we have a log in our own so we start with ourselves but it's not wrong or inappropriate to look for fruit Jesus said by their fruit you shall know them but God is the one who's in charge of judgment right he's the judge here come to judge for all you old-timers like me laugh in here come to judge here come to judge and so since God is the judge and judgment belongs to him and the scriptures also say vengeance is mine saith the Lord again because he's the only one really qualified to take vengeance you know what did Jesus tell the men who were ready to stone the woman caught in adultery let he who is without sin cast the first stone now you and I might crave and desire vengeance and judgment and all those things but what we really should be focusing on in this life is the grace and the mercy of God because we all need it. 
And so we're looking for everything to be solved and resolved in this life when the fact of the matter is the scriptures teach that everything will not be solved and resolved until Jesus comes back, until he establishes his kingdom here on the earth. That's when things will be solved and resolved. So in the meantime, we need to be patient. That is the fruit of the Spirit, by the way. Patience. God has his own plan, his own timing. We want it all fixed right here and now, don't we? just doesn't work that way. And people who can't get past that become frustrated, discouraged, perhaps angry, perhaps bitter. How many times have we heard about people being mad at God for this thing or that thing? Who are we to get mad at God? We have no right to get mad at God. Our knowledge is minute compared to the omniscience of God. We see just a tiny speck. He sees the big picture. But if we allow ourselves to become frustrated, discouraged, bitter, angry, because we don't think God is taking care of things the way he should be, that leads to a, a very unhealthy heart and mind. So Peter is trying to encourage us with the fact, and as my wife often likes to say, I'm encouraged by the most negative things. She says that. I think that's a good quality to have. If you can be encouraged by the negative things, certainly you can be encouraged by the positive things, right? Well, judgment is a negative thing. It's a sad thing. It's an unfortunate thing. But the scriptures do clearly speak of coming judgment upon the wicked. And the only difference between the wicked and the godly, the, the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous, is that the, the godly, the righteous, are simply those who acknowledge that they are sinners, they've confessed their sins before the living God, they've asked for forgiveness, and they've been washed with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're no better than anybody else, those of us that are saved, that are born again. We have simply taken advantage of the opportunity God has presented to us to be forgiven and to be saved. But to reject that opportunity is to remain in the category of the unrighteous, of the wicked. And the Bible clearly teaches that the time will come when the ungodly, the wicked, will be judged by God. And so Peter is trying to encourage us with something negative, and that is that you may not think that the false teachers and the false prophets are being held accountable, but according to God, they most definitely will be. But again, when that happens is up to him, not us. That's why it's so important that the body of Christ be trained, be equipped, be warned, because in the short term, it's going to take discernment, which we have available to us through the Holy Spirit. We're going to need discernment because in the short term, they're going to be like 
wolves in sheep's clothing. It's not going to be blatantly obvious that these people are false teachers, false prophets, deceivers. To the untrained spiritual eye, they will look just like everybody else. Yeah, if God were to just torch them right here and now, well, then it'd be pretty obvious, wouldn't it? But that's not his plan. That's not what he's going to do. And there are a number of reasons for that. And one of them is to test our faith. Are we going to be tossed about by every wind of doctrine? Are we going to believe anything and everything that comes down the pike? Everything we see on Christian TV, everything we hear on Christian radio, everything we see in the Christian bookstore, are we going to buy into all of it? Or are we going to stay true to the Word of God? Let God be true and every man a liar. And so one of the many reasons God is withholding judgment until His appointed time is to test our faith. Because untested faith is not genuine faith. It needs to be tested. God already knows. We need to know. Where do I stand with God? Am I the real deal? Am I just religious? Am I a fake? Am I a phony? Or am I a true follower of Christ? We only find out through testing. And part of that testing is being subjected to false teaching and finding out whether we give into it or not. And I'm telling you right now, there are an awful lot of people that have given into it. I would say there are more that have than those who have not. That was all extra for free. No additional charge. But let's read verses 4 through 9. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved for judgment, reserved, judgment coming at a later time, and did not spare the ancient world, but save Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Boy, that's certainly some politically incorrect language, isn't it? I think we need to edit this Bible. This just isn't going to fly in 2018. Filthy conduct of the wicked? My goodness. Our brains might just be activated again by reading things like this. Can you imagine? For that righteous man, and Lot wasn't perfect by any means. He was righteous because he had faith in the one true God. That righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul. Is your righteous soul ever feel tormented? Oh, yeah. Lot was tormented by what was going on around him there in Sodom and Gomorrah. From day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. See, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is not the day of judgment. This might be the day you want judgment to take place, but this isn't it. 
So get over it and get on with your life and just be patient and wait for God to mete out his judgment in the proper time and be thankful that you're not going to be a recipient of that judgment. And pray for those who are. Instead of being so consumed with wanting people to get their just desserts, and I love dessert, but I don't want my just desserts. I want grace and mercy. And we should want that for others. Who are we to take advantage of God's grace and mercy and then wish that he would withhold it from somebody else? I think that's sinful, don't you? All right, let's pray. Father God, we lift up this time in your word. We ask that you'd multiply the time. It's already running short. Lord, just bring your message forth to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've been hinting at this for several weeks. I kept telling you we're going to talk about this. As I've mentioned several times recently, there are those who believe and teach the fallen angels and demons are two distinct separate entities. We read again this morning, verse 4, if God did not spare the angels who sinned. And we already went into some detail about that. About the sons of God, the angels, the fallen angels who cohabitated with women in Genesis chapter 6. And so here's the idea, which for much of my Christian life I'd never have been exposed to this. Maybe I just have lived a sheltered life. I don't know. But there are those who believe and teach, and I'm beginning to move into this category, that fallen angels and demons are two distinct entities, that demons are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, half angel, half human, and then obviously fallen angels are fallen angels, those kicked out of heaven with Satan when he rebelled. Now, by the way, we talked already about the controversy of Genesis 6. There are those, quite a number of reliable theologians, Bible scholars, and so forth, who believe that the sons of God are the fallen angels and that they then entered into a relationship with human women and produced offspring, the Nephilim, the giants, half human, half fallen angel. But there are others who reject that. I don't think they reject it because it's not biblically or theologically sound. They just can't deal with the idea that this could actually happen. But the only way that this theory that I'm presenting to you now about the distinction between demons and fallen angels, it only works if, in fact, our understanding of Genesis 6 is correct in that the fallen angels did have relations with human women, produced these hybrid, half-human, half-angelic people, and then that they, when they died in the flood their spirits became the demonic entities that have been roaming the earth ever since. If that interpretation is incorrect, and the sons of God, as some teachers say, were the godly offspring of the son of Adam and Eve, Seth, and so what they're trying to say is that we had godly men marrying ungodly women, but why would that produce giants? doesn't make any sense. But this, what I'm presenting you today, only works if our assessment, which I believe is correct, 
that truly Genesis 6 means exactly what it says, that these fallen angels intermingled with human women and produced these offspring, the Nephilim. Okay, some points to be made here. Again, this is not original with me. This is information that I have gleaned from other sources, but I'm presenting it to you because I believe it's a valid uh, argument and really an important thing to look at in terms of understanding a lot of the supernatural dynamics that we often are confused by. The first point, fallen angels appear to be more powerful than demons. Now we're told by Jesus and other New Testament writers to cast out demons, right? And yet Jude in his one chapter book cautions us in our confrontations with fallen angels. Jude 1, 8 and 9. Likewise, also these dreamers, and again, Jude is also dealing with the issue of false teachers. They defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of all dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, the devil wanted to defile Moses' body. God sent Michael, the archangel, to bury Moses give him an honorable burial. Satan wanted to do otherwise. It says, he dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So Jude is making a case here that we're not to take, take it lightly if and when we were ever dealing with a fallen angel. And yet, and the New Testament is replete with passages that talk about casting out demons and there's never any mention of being cautious or saying the Lord rebuke you. There appears to be a difference between fallen angels and demons in terms of their power and their authority. So the point being made by those who follow this theological persuasion is that it's proper to rebuke demons but not fallen angels. Fallen angels, by the way, have their own celestial bodies. In fact, we're told in the New Testament, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And yet, whenever you see depictions of demonic entities, they always look pretty grotesque, don't they? Now, you might say, well, that's just fairy tale, that's mythology, and so forth. But I believe that all of this stuff is rooted in some type of truth. We have thousands and thousands of years of people reporting on, drawings, and so forth of what they have seen and heard in terms of the supernatural. So I think to just dismiss it all out of hand as being fairy tales and mythology is a mistake. And so we have just a massive record over thousands of years of depictions of these demonic entities, and yet we find that fallen angels are portrayed more as deceivers, uh, beings of light, Satan masquerading as an angel of light. Fallen angels have their own celestial bodies, just as we have an earthly body. We will one day have a celestial body, if you will, one that can withstand variations in the atmosphere. We're going to be raptured up to meet the Lord in the air. We won't have any oxygen masks. Something's going to be different about 
our breathing apparatus and so forth. We're going to have glorified, immortal, imperishable, incorruptible bodies that can enter into the presence of God who dwells in unapproachable light. If you or I could stand in the presence of God right now, we'd be incinerated. God is a God of fire. These bodies are not suited for that. One day we will have the proper bodies. Fallen angels have their own celestial bodies. Therefore, they don't need to inhabit human bodies. And yet demons, from what we see in the scriptures, they seem to seek bodies desperately. Remember when Jesus cast the legion of demons out of that demoniac, they begged Jesus to send them into that herd of pigs, remember? Mark 5, 12 through 13. So they seem to have a desperate need to inhabit some type of a physical body, preferably human, but if not human, then pigs or what have you. Fallen angels, from everything we can see in the scriptures, have the ability to fly, but as far as we can tell, demons can only walk. And again, looking at these things and perhaps beginning to understand them better, it really helps me out because there was a time earlier in my life, I was a believer, but I was very uh, cynical and skeptical about the dark side of the supernatural. I had no problem buying into the supernatural aspect of God and the miracles that he's performed. But as a young person, teenager, I was very skeptical of the dark side. But I, then as I grew in the Lord and got older, I learned you can't believe in one side without believing in the other. It's all real. And so, in fact, I even uh, knew a girl. They had a slumber party in high school, a number of these girls. And they got out a Ouija board and started to mess with it. And one the, I wasn't there, but I was told about it later on that this one girl, this gnarly, deep, growly voice began to speak through her as they were playing with this Ouija board. And again, at the time, I was skeptical. I'm not skeptical anymore. And so as we begin to look at these things, it helps me, I, maybe you too, to, to understand a lot of these things that we've heard about all of our lives, but either we didn't understand them, we were skeptical of them, or we misunderstood what was going on. Matthew twelve forty three, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man... He walketh through dry places. Why would he walketh? Why wouldn't he flyeth? I don't know how that old King James got in there, but there it is. He walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. Again, demons walk, apparently. Fallen angels fly. In these last days, there's been just a massive amount of teaching on Aliens, UFOs, I did a whole series on the Nephilim. I mentioned it a few weeks ago. Very in-depth, several months long. And, of course, I've believed for many years, and I probably first heard it from the late, great Dr. Walter Martin back in the 70s, but the idea that these UFOs are simply, I would have said before, demonic entities. Now I would narrow that down to fallen angels. And there again, the connection between flight fallen angels have that ability that capacity to travel through various heavenly realms 
and apparently can at times penetrate into a dimension that you and I are able to see with our physical eyes. Just as we have records in the scriptures of God's angels appearing to human beings. Now they are transdimensional. We are confined to just a third dimensional world, although they now say they believe they're probably more like 11 or 12 dimensions. That would explain why there are things like God's heavenly throne room and so forth that we cannot see even with the most powerful telescope because God and his angels and the fallen angels and Satan and even these demonic entities dwell within dimensions you and I cannot see with our physical eyes. And yet the Bible clearly says that they're here, they're around. We're here. Now another distinction as we look at this particular theological position. Demons are the powers of this dark world. We know Satan is the prince of this world. Fallen angels are the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And Paul differentiates between these various classes of dark forces in Ephesians 6.12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. This is something we would do well to remember more often. So often we deal with the problems of life on a very terrestrial level, a very fleshly level, when the fact of the matter is it's really a spiritual matter. Granted, sometimes human beings become instruments of the enemy, but the ultimate power behind all of this is Satan himself, the fallen angels, and the demonic entities. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. So you have an upper echelon there against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Again, it would seem that demonic entities are confined to the earth, whereas fallen angels have a much greater level of freedom of movement. So again, we talk about these demonic entities the spirits of the Nephilim, if you will, as disembodied spirits. The Bible seems to indicate that demons are disembodied spirits. They once had bodies, but lost them. Now, they would not be the departed spirits of human beings because the Bible also clearly teaches that we either go, prior to the coming of Christ, people would go either to Abraham's bosom or they would go to the, dark, the, the hot side. They're both in the center of the earth. The righteous under the old covenant would go to Abraham's bosom. Do you remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man? Lazarus, the poor beggar with the sores. The dogs would lick his sores. My dog was just licking my arm yesterday. Makes me a little nervous. I keep reading these stories about people getting all these nasty infections from dogs and cats licking them. We used to think, oh, let him lick your sore. It'll heal. I don't know. Not looking too good. In fact, Lazarus died. So maybe he shouldn't have been letting the dog lick his sores either. He goes to Abraham's bosom. The rich man, he's on the hot side. And he's calling out to Father Abraham, please send Lazarus over to bring me a drink of water. It's hot over here. And Abraham's, sorry, bro, no can do. Can't do that. Now, after the coming of Christ... 
the, the ungodly, the unsaved, would still go to that holding place, their spirits, Hades, but the righteous now go into the presence of God, their spirits. So when we talk about these disembodied spirits, and that's where people get confused. Oh, I saw my grandmother. I don't think so. You probably saw a demon posing as your grandmother because that demon's trying to gain some kind of access into your life. Your grandmother's either with God or she's not. We hope and pray for the best, right? But all these stories we hear of ghosts and goblins and specters and demons would all be connected to these disembodied spirits. And that would explain why they hunt for bodies. They crave bodies to inhabit. So what are demons? Demons are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim who are mentioned in Genesis chapter 6. The Nephilim are the offspring of the fallen angels and humans. The Nephilim were destroyed in the flood, yet their spirits remained on the earth. Now again, this is an alternate explanation where it says in Genesis they were on the earth in those days and also afterward. How could they be here afterward if they drowned in the flood? They could be here because their disembodied spirits had remained. And according to at least some of these scholars, theologians, Bible teachers, that this particular view of demons, that they are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, is the oldest held belief among the Jewish people. And reportedly, it's a also a belief that the apostles held to as well. Now, in these last days, I've mentioned the book of Enoch. More and more scholars, the book of Enoch is not in the Bible, but actually Jude, in his book, quotes from the book of Enoch. Now, for whatever reason, the men who gathered and decided which books were canonical, part of the biblical canon that should be included in the scriptures as being divinely inspired, Enoch was not included. But we find, especially in the last days, because there's so much detailed information about the, the history of the human race leading up to the time of the flood found in the book of Enoch, more and more Bible scholars and students are looking to this apocryphal book of Enoch as a valuable resource. I'm going to read from Enoch 15, 8 through 10. The giants who are born from the union of the spirits and the flesh shall be called evil spirits upon the earth because their dwelling shall be upon the earth and inside the earth. Evil spirits have come out of their bodies. Because from the day they were created from the sons of God, they became watchers. Their first origin is the spiritual foundation. They will become evil upon the earth and shall be called evil spirits. The dwelling of the spiritual beings of heaven is heaven. But the dwelling of the spirits of the earth, which are born upon the earth, is in the earth. Now, again, as we've pointed out, these Nephilim were half human, half angel. And again, we know when a human dies, he either goes to heaven or hell. But what about these beings who are neither fully human or fully angelic? Where would they go when they died? 
There was no place prepared for them by God. Hades, hell was prepared for the wicked, the unrighteous. Heaven or Abraham's bosom for the righteous. And so the idea here is that they went nowhere. They stayed on the earth. They're the demon spirits that walk through the earth looking for bodies to inhabit. They know that one day they will be cast into the pit when their time comes. The demons cried out to Jesus. Remember this in Matthew 8, 29. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? You remember that? And so I think it is important to understand the difference between demons and fallen angels because if they are separate and distinct entities, then according to the scriptures, we would deal with them differently. You can cast out demons, but you pray to God for him to deal with the fallen angels just like Daniel did in Daniel chapter 10. I'm going to read from Daniel 10, 10 through 13. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. And then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes. And so we see here that Michael, being referred to as a prince, he's one of the angelic princes, one of the hierarchy in God's angelic army, if you will. Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. So this apparently was another angel, although not of the same rank, perhaps, as Michael. For I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. And so I find this very interesting because something that it tells us and if you, if you think about it logically and you look at all the, the kingdoms and the governments of the world, particularly the, the evil ones, the ungodly ones, the ones that have rejected the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even as there are human rulers, there are also angelic fallen angel rulers over these various dominions upon the earth. And it, it goes a long way towards explaining some of the evil things that these rulers do because they're being influenced by something higher than themselves. Now, in the case of a good godly government, then we would, we would believe and hope and pray that there would be a godly influence. But in many parts of the world, it's just the opposite. So there are, in the past, I would have said demonic entities over these various dominions but now I'm beginning to see it more as the idea of these fallen angels controlling events. The demonic entities would be subservient to these fallen angels. Certainly they would work together and work in concert, but the fallen angels would be the hierarchy. And so we see that playing out with Daniel. He's seeking information from God. And this angel says, well, I was on my way to bring you the answer, but I was delayed by this prince of the kingdom of Persia, which was not a human being. It was a fallen angel. Now, in my opinion, 
this particular theological perspective that we're talking about today in many ways makes a lot of sense. Again, it only works if you buy into the literal interpretation of Genesis chapter 6. Satan's scheme, as he attempted to carry it out through the fallen angels, was to corrupt the human genome, our DNA, by this mixture of fallen angels with human women so that we would no longer be created in the image of God, making us irredeemable and making it impossible for the Messiah to be born. And by the way, what is happening in these last days? There's an ever-growing movement to tamper with human DNA, is it not? In fact, when you go to Revelation 13, and it talks about the mark of the beast, which we now believe more than likely will be a microchip. They're already putting microchips in people's hands and other places. But some of those that are really deep into this, Thomas Horn, L.A. Marzulli. Marzulli's been to our church. How many of you have seen Marzulli? Marzulli worked with a doctor who they, they interviewed these people who had claimed to have experienced uh, alien abductions and so forth where they had implanted something in these people and the doctor removed it. Marzulli was there. He saw it with his own eyes. I've seen the pictures and the videos. And these implants were made of a, of a, of a compound or a substance not recognizable as being from planet Earth. Now, again, we're going pretty deep here, but the theory is, ultimately, what would make... Why would simply getting a microchip in your hand or your forehead make you irredeemable? Because, uh, unless Hillary Clinton said so. Maybe that's the deal. Deplorables, irredeemables. <laughs> Got to have a little fun. What? Why would simply getting a microchip implanted make you irredeemable? Because it says clearly in Revelation 13, if you get this, mark of the beast, you can't be saved. Get it? Cannot be saved. That means everybody who takes the mark of the beast, which will be more than likely a microchip, why would they be irredeemable at that point? The theory is one of the selling points, because right now it's a very minute number of people doing this and a lot of pets. A lot of pets have microchips. Has Bowser been acting funny lately? <laughs> Has Muffin been less friendly? <laughs> Just teasing. The theory, what would be the selling point? Right now, how, what percentage of the populace do you think would go for it if tomorrow they announced mandatory chipping for every single human being? What percentage of the planet would buy into that, do you think? I can't imagine more than half. 50% may be right, but that won't cut it. 50% won't cut it. It has to be 100% of everybody on planet Earth has to take the mark. Or you're beheaded, according to the book of Revelation. But what would be the selling point? Now you say, well, you can't buy or sell without it. That is a strong selling point. But the black market's been alive and well for thousands of years, right? There's other ways to get stuff. 
and you can go out in the boonies somewhere and grow stuff and survive. I mean, there's ways to survive. So I'm not sure the buying and selling would be strong enough to convince everybody. What do you think? But what if they could promise you that by taking the chip, that whatever health problems you have would be solved? You wouldn't get cancer. You wouldn't get diabetes. You wouldn't get heart disease. By the way, another one of the things that's being talked about a lot in the technocracy, technological circles, scientific circles, even philosophical circles, is the potential for extending human life. Have you heard about that? 200 years, 300 years, so forth. Isn't that what everybody wants? Well, if you're not a believer, you do. Because this is all there is. And most people are not believers, folks. Do you realize that? They want to live as long as they can and be as healthy as they can. I mean, there are people right now having themselves frozen, right? Cryogenics. I just read where somebody was getting sued the other day because they only froze the head and not the whole body. <laughs> so if you decide to get frozen, make sure you know what you're getting. I want the whole thing to be frozen, not just the head. But this stuff is real. It's going on all around us. This attempt, the CRISPR technology. We talked about this some time ago, the CRISPR technology. If you go on Google, you can buy these kits online to modify DNA. Look it up if you don't believe me. Although I would recommend getting rid of your Google. Uh, Google is a pretty nasty bunch. There's a new search engine called DuckDuckGo. They don't track any of your information. DuckDuckGo. We need to boycott Google. It's going to be hard. It's like an addiction. Have you Googled today? <laughs> but we do need to get rid of that old Google. That old Google is known by some other names. So the scientific and technological communities are engaging at this very moment in the same activity that these fallen angels were way back in the day of Noah. Genome engineering and editing. And I would argue, and there's a lot of evidence to support this, ancient man was intellectually superior to modern man. I believe that. So with that in mind, where did these modern scientists and technological folks get all this amazing intel in less than 100 years? Do you re realize the dramatic, unbelievable, incredible transformation of this planet over the last 100 years? 100 years ago, the big deal was the Titanic. That didn't work out too well. The big deal 100 years ago was mustard gas in World War I. Now we have nuclear weapons. How we, we've got about roughly, if you're a young earther, like me and many others, 6,000 years, 10,000 at the outside of human history. Not like all these billions of years that the secular, humanistic, Darwinistic idiots tell everybody. 
So, but, okay, let's just work with 6,000. I like that number. So for 5,900 years, give or take, the fastest mode of transportation was about 20 miles per hour. Horseback, carriage, boat, right? Now we have these space shuttles that go 20,000 miles an hour. How did this happen? In a little over 100 years or so? Given the fact that there is strong evidence that ancient man was intellectually superior, probably physically too, pretty much superior in every way because sin deteriorates. Dr. Rick Oliver says every generation has 100 more mutations than the previous generation. The only reason the lifespan has increased, and by the way, it's recently dropped off in the United States. Did you know that? We've started going backwards again. The only reason we've been able to increase the lifespan is because of all the chemicals, all the medications, all the advances in, in medicine and uh, surgeries and so forth and lasers and la laparoscopy and all these things. We've been able to increase people's lifespans. But given the fact, again, you look at, there's so many, so many evidences of the superiority of ancient man, which again debunks evolution. We're not getting smarter. So where did they get it all from? Maybe from the same place that they got it the first time in Genesis 6. In fact, there are engineers and scientists that have clearly stated that they've received information from other entities rather than human beings. This is documented. They get together. They have gatherings. How many of you have ever heard of channeling and spirit guides and this type of thing? Folks, it's all real. We can be little dumb little Christians and hide our heads in the sand or we can look at the realities that are taking place all around us. I believe the reason we've had this massive... And by the way, Daniel 12, God told Daniel that all the information would be sealed up until the last days when knowledge would increase. But what caused it to increase? Could it be the end times, last days, reincursion of fallen angels attempting to once again do what they tried to do 4,000 years ago or so to modify human DNA, the human genome. I mean, there's a whole movement, folks, called transhumanism. Have you heard of it? The idea is that we are obsolete. The human race needs an upgrade. How are you going to do that? It's going to require some modification of DNA, genetic engineering, maybe a few chips here and there. Chip and Dale takes on a whole new meaning. <laughs> I know a good Christian guy named Chip Lesko. I don't know if I'd want to be named Chip at this point in human history. Chip, you might want to think about changing your name. Chip? <laughs> Chip off the old block? I don't think so. Do you have it? Okay, so look at this. I just wanted to show you this. I don't know if you can, it's not very clear. Do you guys see that? Mail order CRISPR kits allow absolutely anyone to hack DNA. And there you see over there a CRISPR kit. The $140 mail order CRISPR kit is unregulated biohacking. And then this lady has, 
doing at home CRISPR. My first CRISPR kit. It's happening, folks. It's crazy. It's nuts. But you see, God kind of blew it when he made us. You know, there's, there's a lot of mistakes in there. And so now we're God, and we can do it better, right? God didn't blow it. He made Adam and Eve perfect. Sin is what destroyed the human race. And the only one that can repair it is Jesus Christ. The only one that can fix our DNA is Jesus Christ. And by the way, as we talk about this, almost every report of a so-called alien abduction, I know that this, you think this is crazy, weird, you're skeptical. Like I said, I was skeptical of so many things, but there's just too many to ignore. You could have a fruit loop here and there, folks. In fact, we might have some here today. I might be one of them. But there's just far too many reports. Chuck Missler wrote a great book about 20 years ago called Alien Encounters that documents a lot of these things. But almost every single one, which would be actually an encounter with a fallen angel, which makes perfect sense, but almost every one of these reports involves the probing and harvesting of reproductive organs and materials, DNA, from their human subjects. Are you aware of that? It's a common denominator amongst so-called alien abductions. Why are they, if these indeed, these UFOs, these aliens, they're fallen angels, why are they goofing around with human DNA? Well, they did it before. Genesis 6, and Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Cyborgs, mutants, transhumanism, singularity, Look it all up if you're not familiar with it. Transgender. That's another part of this, folks. It's all part of the great deception being foisted upon this planet by Satan and his fallen angels. Chimera. You know what a chimera is? That's blending of different types of... Creating an animal that's part pig and part... They have a... Um, what was it? A goat that they injected spider DNA to and they could get milk that could be turned into this really powerful fabric. Crazy weird stuff going on. You've probably seen the pictures where they'll grow a human ear on the back of a mouse. That's, that's just old news. Chimeras are the blending of different species which the Bible clearly prohibits and it cannot happen naturally. It can only happen when somebody interferes with the normal natural process and chances are there's a lot more going on than we realize as much as we know that tells you there's a lot more that we don't know and there are reports and stories of humans uh, being intermingled with different types of animal DNA the various nations of the world are in a, in a massive race to see who can come up first with what they call super soldiers. It's all real. You can ignore it, but it's real. Second Peter 2.5, And did not spare the ancient world. So he didn't spare the angels. He didn't spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. 
So God's judgment on the ancient world took place at the same time as his judgment on the angels who kept not their first estate. The ones who came down and, and intermingled with these human women. This judgment, as you know, was worldwide. It was a universal flood that destroyed all living things except, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, folks out of an estimated pre-flood population. The average estimated population of the world, this might blow your mind. We just think of this little group of people over there in Mesopotamia, right? A very conservative estimate of the world's population at the time of Noah's flood was 10 billion people. A little more than we have now. And that would certainly create a lot of evil spirits, wouldn't it? Because they all died except for Noah and his family. They were all judged. It reminds me of what Jesus said, Luke 13, 23. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Only eight entered through that gate at the time of Noah's flood. Matthew 7, 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, God is not willing that any should perish. God's perfect will, everyone would be saved. No one would be lost. But here Jesus gives the reality, and that is that few. And yet, what is the overriding message of the church today? We want to make that road as wide as possible, right? We want to, just like we have a whole movement against a border wall. No borders, no boundaries. Let everybody come in from anywhere and everywhere. That same message is going out in the church. No barriers, no boundaries. Wide road. One that everybody is comfortable with. That's not the road that leads to eternal life. It's a narrow road. It's a narrow path. It's a narrow gate. And it was certainly narrow in Noah's day. Okay, so we're told here, 2 Peter 2, 5, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Although God's people have always endured persecution, goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, God's judgment, or also known as his wrath, always has been and always will be purely for the ungodly. So for those who are convinced that we will be here for the tribulation, the tribulation is the flood of the last days. It's a flood of judgment and wrath. And it is for, purely for, the ungodly. 1 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 10. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell you how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And so the coming wrath, folks, is the final outpouring of God's judgment on an unbelieving world, just as it was in the days of Noah. 
Everyone but the righteous were destroyed. Noah and his family entered into an ark of protection. If God's word is true, and it is, and Jesus is the one who rescues us from the coming wrath, then that's just one of many reasons why I firmly believe we will not be here. We will be raptured. We will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. If I'm wrong and I don't believe I am, I'm not going to turn away from God. I will follow Him anywhere, through anything. I just hope it's not the tribulation and I don't think it is. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath. To, in my mind, if we go through the tribulation, then it makes God a liar. It makes His word a lie. Because He clearly says... He's going to rescue us from the coming wrath. He did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. But as surely as you and I, I'm standing here, you're sitting there, as surely as those things are true, it is true that there's a wrath coming, a judgment coming upon this world. And if you're not one of God's children, you're going to be part of that judgment. This would be a great time to get saved if you're not already. This would be a great time if you're not walking with God the way you should be to get right with Him because we are right on the verge. I don't believe, personally, there's anything right now that would prevent us from being raptured this very moment. The Bible clearly teaches the imminent return of Christ. That means it could happen at any time, like a thief in the night. The only one who will avoid being ripped off by the thief in the night is the one who's watching and waiting and prepared. Let's stand. Let's pray. If you, while I'm praying, you guys come on up. And if you need prayer, you come up after we close. Father God, thank you for this time together. We pray for your continued wisdom and insight that we could continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I believe that we are part of the last day's church. We are truly in the end times, and therefore we need to be prepared in a way that perhaps goes beyond what previous generations have needed extra preparation, extra training, extra knowledge and information that you promised to open up to us in the last days because knowledge would increase not only in the secular world but in the church as well. Lord, guard our hearts and minds. May we stand firm and stay strong. May we be ready to face anything that you would allow to come our way. But we thank you for the glorious promises of your word that you will rescue us from the coming wrath and you have not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.